Hey, everybody. It is the August 2nd edition. Do I get that right? August 2nd. August 2nd. The year's flying by, James. It's almost over. Christmas soon. It's almost Christmas. You'll be doing Hey, Call Santa and racking up another million people that log on to uh, Subra FM's Call Santa. I got to get a hold of Santa. We got to remind him. Yeah. (laughs) I think he knows by now. He'll be he'll be he'll be feeding Rudolph, getting ready for his big sleigh ride. <laughs> we gotta have the elf on the shelf over at CZ's house. He's getting cold. <laughs> yeah, he's he's gonna need some company when he's wearing stripy pajamas. If um, old Gary has his way, but uh, but there you go, James. Good to be back on the airways with you, and and thank you for listening. This is the Digital Bike Show, brought to you um, by James Tiley, Cyber.fm, and myself, Johnny Fry. Uh, James is in. North Florida, South Georgia, on the river, snapping by the crocodiles. Um, and I'm here in Blighty, calling from the UK. And we look once a week at how, where, why, who are, are using blockchain technology and digital assets in different countries, different industries. And we're not here to give financial advice or tips or recommendations, but really try and shed some light and a bit of thought provoking analysis on the technology and digital assets ranging from good old cryptocurrencies all the way through to the digitization of sovereign um, currencies. So central bank digital currencies, but looking at tokenization of real estate, of commodities, of equities, of bonds. And we've been doing this, James, for, wow, over three years together every week. So um, good to be back on the airwaves this week. Yeah, you know, I can't wait for one day we'll have some major announcement like, you know, crypto is official. Yeah, no more dollar. That's going to happen at some point in our lifetime, right? You know, I, more and more people are sort of getting. Um, well, we've we've got a little bit in our um, in our postscript this 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 week, and it was there was several things I thought were interesting. Um, first of all, BlackRock. Um, that's the biggest asset manager in the world, and they they reckon your portfolio, where you invest your money, you should have ninety four point nine percent invest in Bitcoin. And then nine point ninety four percent. Sorry, eighty. Sorry, eighty four point nine. Eighty four point nine. Still sounds high. And then nine point oh six in equities. Um, and then they said you should have sort of six percent ish in bonds. Does that sound like a reversal to you? Well, but that means Bitcoin's value would be nine hundred trillion which is five times the combined value of all global equities, all real estate, and all bonds. Because that's going to give Bitcoin's price from a lowly 30,000 bucks today to, to 190 million per Bitcoin. <laughs> that's the GDP of three continents. <laughs> I don't know what BlackRock will be smoking, but I think I better have some of that this, week, this weekend, though, James. But... Joking about this is this is an analysis, and if you don't believe it, there's a hyperlink in Digital Bytes because, as you know, we, you know, if we if we write something, we always use a hyperlink. So you can go and see the source uh, for that, and this was in a magazine called Crypto Newsflash um, that they put out. But I I I I, I can't believe and not eight hundred trillion or anywhere close to that. And I quite frankly find eighty four point nine percent of your money in in any one asset, I would you know serious eyebrows would get raised, but. There has to be a reason, James, why BlackRock, Gemini, Invesco, Wisdom, all these fund managers are lobbying the SEC to launch a Bitcoin ETF. 
And one thing is absolutely certain, um, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. And if you suddenly get institutions wanting to put in, you know, I'm, I've heard numbers anywhere between two and a half and seven billion is going to find its way into ETFs once these are launched. Well, that's a lot of buyers and not much stock. And we've got halving coming up next year. So we could well see Bitcoin. And if that happens with Bitcoin, we could see the whole crypto market, you know, suddenly go up a notch. And maybe that leads into what you were saying in terms of adoption, because um, you look at one of the um, one of the DAOs, Hedra. And if you look and we put this in the postscript, and the reason we put this in the postscript is that we, um, that has the largest number of transactions per second of any blockchain according to the University College of London. And it's also the most energy efficient. And some of the people that are on that Hedra board make some very, very impressive reading in rough alphabetical order. You've got Aberdeen, which is a big asset management company. They manage about uh, about 750 billion US dollars. You've got Boeing, the aircraft manufacturer. You've got the blockchain analytical firm Chainlink. Um, you've got a company called Cofra, C-O-F-R-A, and they are an extremely wealthy European family. They used to be a chain of um, uh, a retailer called CNA in the UK. They're, that's long gone. They were well known for their skiing fashion back in the sort of well, lack of fashion, but skiing apparel in the 70s and 80s. You've got DBS Bank, American, the German bank. You've got Dell Computers, Lawyers, Dentons, Deutsche Telekom, another lawyer, DLA Piper. The French electricity company, EDF, FIS, who are WorldPay, Google, IBM, the Indian Institute of Technology, LSE, Nomura. You know, it goes on and on, you know, Tata, um, Ubisoft and UCL themselves. These are the sorts of organizations who are very, very involved in the governance of this particular blockchain. And the reason that we thought it was important to bring this to your attention is that the people that are engaged with the blockchain technology and digital assets are not some sort of weirdo wacky super geeks who are trying to sort of you know destroy the world and you know a lot of the people think about those involved in the technology and certainly cryptocurrencies are you know weird and wacky but we're seeing mainstream institutions and governments looking to use the technology and looking to use these digital assets and that will impact on all of our lives um, more and more as as we go forward james so i was thinking when you mentioned fis they're right around the corner from me, like on the highway. Okay. And, uh, yeah, they're a major, like, pride and joy of Jacksonville, Florida. So it, it that's mass adoption is, I guess, the household name in certain areas. You don't even realize what a household name is. So when you say something like Hedera, you're like, who? But if FIS, everybody talks about BlackRock, but if these household names are all contributing to using blockchain just the employees alone should uh become more aware to- totally agree totally agree um and and f- finally on the postscript because i thought this was also interesting the accounting firm deloitte's have now um teamed up with chain analysis um and chain analysis um are, are offering sort of um if you like investigative skills uh, and digital asset analytic information. Um, so they're using, if you like, Deloitte's accounting and audit um, heritage and chain analysis got a huge amount of information of who's bought different digital assets, particular sort of cryptocurrency in, in particular. And what we're seeing is that 
there's increasing demand for institutions to get involved in this asset class. And therefore, having someone of the calibre of Deloitte that say, yep, we've got clients that are interested in it. We want to provide this service and we're teaming up the specialists um, so they can help track down people that, um, you know, the nefarious actors, the people that are trying to hide things and obscurate using, I don't know, mixers and all sorts of different things. And um, we've got, yeah, again, a, a very, very well established and reputable band, uh, brand with Deloitte's using chain analysis so they can provide an effective solution for those that are want to make sure that who they're dealing with are, are credible and straightforward. But um, yeah, so, but the, the rest of the Digital Bytes this week, James, we've got, um, we're coming up after the break. Um, we've actually got our, our good friend, James Ramsden, KC. KC isn't the Sunshine Band, but it's the King's Council. And he's looking at the Law Commission's third category. If you remember, we had Professor Geek, Professor Sarah Green on a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the Law Commission here in England for England and Wales have, have, have proposed that maybe we have um, a third type of asset and trying to give some legal clarity around digital assets. But um, that's after the break. But we've also cover DeFi and privacy, looking at how you balance how being transparent, but at the same time ensuring you've got data protection, which is obviously very, very important in um, ma many different jurisdictions like to talk a little bit about tokenized deposits which we'll come back to and but james should we kick off nfts you, you're you're fond of non-fungible tokens and we've looked at how nfts are being used in other areas not just um better monkey business and art so you opened up with the whole sotheby's carrying out a dutch auction and uh, no, that was cool i thought well it's cool just because you know how many people don't even know or i'll speak for myself Dutch auctions are always weird, right? They started a, it's the opposite of crypto. They start at like a high price, and, <laughs> right? And then they come down until somebody bids. Says, yep, I'll have that. <laughs> right. I'm waiting for $4. I'm holding out. <laughs> but I'm that guy where if I have to talk about artwork in NFTs like one more time, I, I, I would have screamed. Now, I, I understand that the, um, it, it was an introduction, uh, a great use case, right? But we allowed things like those monkeys to become just incredibly overvalued for artwork. Yeah. And we've done shows in the past where we talk about um, NFTs for licensing and intellectual property, title deeds and insurance. Yep. Are, are you finding it maybe finally going that way? Or are we still going to be relying on like Sotheby's? Um, okay, so I, th I think we, we we wanted to highlight the fact that um, there had been a lot of brouhaha over using non fungible tokens um, in the art world, and and that that is I think that's coming back um, to to some extent. And um, the fact that Sotheby's carried out, as you say, a Dutch auction that wasn't selling off stuff from Holland, but it was actually a completely different way of auctioning. Things. That's the first time in three hundred years. I, I I think that's. I just thought it just made me smile that a very um, traditional, old-fashioned sort of um, business was prepared to embrace a new way of selling products. And and as we pointed out, um, you got the Spanish National Museum um, selling off sort of Van Goghs. You got Japanese Nippon tele Telegraph and Telephone digitizing the Vatican's art trove. Um, and and these are reputable 
institutions and bearing in mind less than five percent of a museum's treasures are ever on display that's 95 percent of their collections are sort of stuffed away in drawers and boxes and you can't see them you can't enjoy them let alone monetize them so i think we're going to see more and more institutions in the art world but it was it was really moving on from there and um you know you're you're big into the music business james you know you've not only you highly skilled and been you know been in wall street for a number of years but lastly you've been very much in the music business and i thought it was interesting about harry styles using nfts at a recent concert as a way to have ongoing engagement with their with his fans and i, th- I think out of the eighty thousand people um, there was something like a five thousand people downloaded the nft and then there were a hundred thousand interactions as they were using them and I, I think that we're going to see NFTs very much used in, in, in conjunction with loyalty. And I think blockchain technology as a whole and digital assets, we're going to see a big revamping of our loyalty scheme. So, you know, who you fly with, where you stay in hotels, the cars you drive, the fuel you put in your car, I don't know, where you shop, things like that. It's a big industry, which is all most of us don't use our loyalty schemes. because It's a bit of a pain. You've got to get out bits of paper or get out your phone and how much is it worth and what's involved but as it becomes easier i think it's going to be a, as, a, as a real useful tool because we all know it's it's so much easier to get an existing customer to come back and buy more with you compared to trying to encourage a new customer to do business the first time so loyalty schemes i see is a a big big beneficiary in the in this digital field and if you think about it there's two aspects there right you can almost say that it's covering security so yep. for your example in a museum uh, not everybody can get to go, you know, see and be even near, you know, the Hope Diamond, right? You probably have to go through a whole KYC plan when it's uh, yep. stored away. So an NFT of the Hope Diamond, maybe with special video or audio or, or a reservation to go see it in person would be stored in the NFT. Much like Harry Styles, as you mentioned, was given away to the loyal fans they were able to get access to merchandise, right? Memorabilia, perhaps yep. uh, backstage tickets. So that's a security gate function of an NFT. Even guised as loyalty or rewards, it's providing a security function, right? I can't get backstage. You can't get backstage. But I got this NFT that says I can. We're using yep. NFTs to also gate websites. No more logging in to a website with your email address if you need be. Whereas you would connect your wallet. And because you hold, let's go fast forward to the future, the Visa Pass NFT, Visa now allows you to log into your Visa account. Yep. Whole new level of security. But James, I see I see this, you know, I my, my slight concern about NFTs is that they've been seen in a quite narrow focus but i know you share this with me they are really uh, a, a digital certificate and that certificate as you say can give you access at, like as a security pass um, it can be a digital certificate which t- contains unique information about your car or your home or your health um, but i thought it was interesting um, in the manufacturing process siemens announced to celebrate now siemens is a huge german um precision engineering business 
um, does all sorts of things. And to celebrate the 175th anniversary, um, they, they, they said we're breaking new ground and entering the NFT space. And I, I think that uh, we, I think we spoke about this actually a couple of weeks ago. We were saying that, you know, they're, they're part of this. They're going to put two billion euros aside um, to start developing opportunities that they see within the metaverse. And obviously, that's a digital or virtual world where they can look at doing market research or testing products or doing um, R&D type, type of um, work. And then looking then to sort of do additive manufacturing and it's a combination of the virtual and the real world. So we're beginning to see that a real blurring between, um, if you like, the, 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 the reality of something physical and tangible and also the virtual world that we're going to see increasing in, in as we become more and more digitized. So lo- long answer, but I, I would say, yes, we'll be seeing more and more ways that um, these digital certificates, these non-fungible tokens are being used, apart from just, you know, monkeys and, and stuff like that with Board 8 Yacht Club. Well, actually, you know what? When we go back to security, Siemens is probably a great example, right? Because they they they're in everything, right? Siemens from photocopiers to uh, you know lifts to escalators, right. yep. But they they have a a big foothold in analyzing blood and doing blood tests. Okay. okay. So imagine storing very secretive, well protected blood test results and you would have to so an nft only assigned to whatever health administration would would have it would have access to that blood analyzed data which would be recorded forever yeah right uh hipaa in, in the united states is the the healthcare information privacy act that i mean right there you've expanded the security of your healthcare privacy with something physically tangible as blood, you know, blood, do you say molecules, blood yeah. samples, blood cells? Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's going to be used in, in a variety of ways. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of sort of leads, leads on to the, the, one of the other articles, um, which is tokenized deposits, because, you know, most of us have a bit of cash in our wallets, We you know, but if not increasingly, we are using, um, or we transact in in a different way using debits and credit cards, and and as we've touched on this before, you've got um, the average profitability of an S and P five hundred company is is ten percent. That's that that average margin. And um, today, being the fourth of August, um, actually, I think it was yesterday, Ferrari put out an announcement um, that actually their earnings are going to be a lot better because um, people are buying more of their cars. But interestingly, they're customizing their cars and this customization, um, making it unique, perhaps having different colored brake calipers or different colored sort of stylish in or outside their cars. So Ferrari are working on a profit margin of around about 40 percent. Now, you compare that to Uber, who came out of the results, they're working on a profit margin of four percent. But these are a MasterCard, James. They're operating on a profit margin in excess of, you know, 50% certainly were last year. So they're very interested in looking at how is money or value or payments being changed. And we're beginning to see these things called deposit tokens, um, which were first proposed by DBS um, and JP Morgan back in May uh, of last year. And they developed this thing called Project 
Guardian. And it was a new form of digital money. And what what they're basically arguing is that there are some jurisdictions that say, well, because it's still a deposit held by a bank, you're protected. So um, in this country, you get a protection of about £85,000 if the bank goes bust. In the US, James, correct me if I'm wrong, you get a protection. So if you had money in um, Silicon Valley Bank, you were protected by the FDIC scheme for is a quarter of a million pounds yeah, dollars each. 250 250 so husband and wife got half a million protection um so they're saying well this would be having deposit tokens would be a lot safer than having a stable coin or um central bank digital currency potentially because you know you've got FD, fdic protection but then unfortunately the germans then came along um and deutsche bank said oh no 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 we don't think that deposit tokens necessarily um, you're you're going to be protected by your relevant insurance deposit schemes. So a little bit of sort of uh, an alternative view there. But what we're seeing is that um, the way in which money is being moved around is without a doubt being changed, and that's going to have a big impact. And it's going to help as we see the adoption of more digitization. We mentioned the metaverse a minute ago. Different, you're not going to have a virtual world, and then people are going to go back to you know sending you a check that's just that's just not going to happen so this whole idea of tokenizing money um is definitely gonna definitely gonna become a bigger and bigger thing and there's a debate will will deposit tokens take over from stable coins stroke cbdc's well i see an issue i mean mm-hmm. you explained it well but i i you you mentally created an issue in my head over here in america Anyway, if you recall, Coinbase had advised its investors and its board that, yep. God forbid, should something go wrong. You know, they're not Amazon with an 11% jump, by the way, right? And their yep. stock went up 5% yesterday. So everybody is doing well. But Coinbase said, God forbid, we had to file bankruptcy. They, they advised everybody, and they had to publicly and transparently, that all of the tokens deposited into the coinbase ecosystem are owned mm. by coinbase not you which goes to the whole not your keys not your crypto ordeal yep. right yep, yep. so so now we're talking about legitimizing tokenized deposits but at least in the united states right now we are also saying you give up ownership legally of those tokens when you deposit them. So I don't know the answer to this question. Who's going to make that change? Well, this is the thing you see, because if you have a, if you have a bank deposit, then it's, it's absolutely fine. You, you, you become basically a creditor to the bank. So are you've given your cash and then effectively the bank owes you money. So if the bank goes bust, they say you better get to the back of the line. Apart from you've got the FDIC protection and you have a, a deposit protection scheme in, in, in Europe. Most most jurisdictions here in Europe have a similar sort of thing. So you do have a degree of protection. But what you're saying there is if you have your money um, with um, Coinbase or indeed if you have your money with um, Franklin Templeton or BlackRock or any other of the companies that are looking to bring out digital money market funds, and that's going to become a bigger and bigger thing. They don't have the necessarily the same levels of protection. Um, I don't know what you have in terms of investor protection schemes. If you have your money um, with, I don't know, with Merrill's and, or, you know, BlackRock and BlackRock go bust, 
you have an insurance protection scheme on mutual funds, don't you? We, we do. We have investors' compensation scheme. Again, I think your first £75,000 you're protected again. Right, yes, yes. Because they, they are registered and seen as, as, as securities. But but the trouble is, is that some of these stable coins, um, I, they're just, they're, there has to be questions put on them. Um, you know, this week we saw Tether. They had um, a report signed off by um, BDO, firm of accountants, and um, they basically, it was an attestation. It wasn't an audit. They simply said that, um, you know, we believe that they've got promise. Well, precisely. Have you heard the term pinky promise? Yeah, with your little finger. Um, and but, but you know, it, it it's nuts because actually, um, you know, out of out of the, you know, they, they've got one point seven billion of Bitcoin. They've got half, five and a half billion of secured loans. Another two and a half billion of other investments. Um, they've got three point three billion of precious metals. And you think, well, well, hang on. I thought you were investing as tether as a stable coin. I thought the 86-odd billion was invested into U.S. Treasury. But no, 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 it's not. It's not. And, and and it's not audited. And whatever they say, you know, they keep on about it, they keep on about it. Just go and get an audit. Why can't you get a big company to come along and say, we have checked and we know where the cash is and it's all okay. But no, they don't. They get these attestations from these auditors saying, oh, well, we, we've, we've had a look and, we, you know, it's... um." Yeah, we think it's okay. Well, it's very different from an audit. So, again, a big note of caution that a lot of these stable coins, which are incorrectly worded in, or named in the first place, they are pegged to something. Well, Tether is pegged to a basket of things. With respect, I think nearly 70% U.S. Treasuries, but it's not 100% Treasuries. And, and you know, other, other stable coins suffer a similar sort of fate. And that's why we saw, you know, U.S. Cir- um, Circle, we saw that, um, you know, collapse in value because it had money in Silicon Valley Bank. And Circle actually generates the majority of Coinbase's profits at the moment because most of these flipping stable coins, they keep all the interest. Well, it's your money, so why are they not sharing the interest? So I think we're going to see some changes coming out and we're going to start seeing stable coins that actually give you some of the interest or some of the returns that they're generating, give it back to their depositors. And now that'll be a new thing. It's funny you say that because I had to pay my property taxes. Uh, mm-hmm. I did it this morning. Oh, uh, yesterday. I'm sorry. I had to pay my property taxes yesterday. And I I put the thought into it. And I said, you know, this is a lot of money. It's taxes. I loaded up the money on my Coinbase Visa card. And I paid my property taxes with the Coinbase Visa debit card. Because I specifically wanted the rewards in the USDC and some other coins. I said, I'm going to make a big purchase, basically. It's a tax man. I'm getting something out of this. And I purposely <laughs> went ahead and moved the money and used that card so I get rewarded in crypto. Oh, and, there, and there you go. So you got the SEC having a go at Coinbase, yet and the, um, the, the, the collector of taxes in America, they're quite happy to use Coinbase for you to pay them their tax. Get my USDC. <laughs> okay. Well, James... Um, as I say, coming up after the break, we've got James Ramsden, um, King's counsellor. Um, so he's a top-notch lawyer, and he's going to be talking about the Law Commission's new third category. Um, but that's coming after the break. But um, listeners, if you would like a copy of Digital Bytes, um, no problem at all. Just go to 
um every week we we, we send it out just go to digitalbytes.substack.com and you can download and get um, a copy of digital bytes every week in it lots and lots of hyperlinks which give backup and support um and verification for a lot of what james and i've been talking about and if you have any questions got any queries then please reach out to james tiley at cyber.fm that's james then tiley t-y-l double e um or myself johnny fry j-o-n-n-y f-r-y foxtrot romeo yankee can't get much easier than that james and we'll be back after the break um once we've just had a few of these messages from our kind sponsors teamblockchain.net right in front of you the minute it loads up we don't care how you listen to this show i'd love for you to listen on cyber.fm but let's be realistic anchor spotify apple google amazon iheart castbox stitcher tune in pandora and you could always say alexa open up digital bytes podcast we put that right there in the very front and right next to it if you have no idea what we're talking about every week Stick your email address in there and actually get the newsletter. Welcome back. And I'm delighted to be joined by uh, James Ranson, um, Casey. James, I, before we get into the article, do you often get, do you often find yourself going James Ranson QC? Because you've had it so long and now you've got to say Casey. Yeah, well, Johnny, great to be back again. And yeah, it's been a strange old, um, gosh, nearly nearly 12 months now um, since the late Queen died. Um yeah, it was very odd because a, a few days after the Queen passed away, we all got an email um, from the Crown Office saying, you must now change your title. Um, and it was all very arbitrary and sudden. So there was a lot of scrabbling around on websites and business cards and everything else. And yeah, do you know what? I, I, I do. I do still find it strange. You weren't going to and... change it to Mrs. Ramsden, were you? And that... <laughs> <laughs> she she wouldn't like that. Um, <laughs> do you know, it, and, it, and it's funny because... Obviously, I grew up um, with the, the yeah the, the QC tag, and, and when you look at the law reports, the people referred to as Casey's were all very old, very and old. So it's it's very you know you feel suddenly twenty years very old, old. <laughs> <laughs> very old. Oh well, James, yeah. it's great great to have you back, um, and I, I I was keen to get you back on the show because you you wrote an interesting article um, to do with the Law Commission's third category. Um, and, and I was it'd be pr- uh, really good for sort of um, no listeners if, if you could just give us sort of an appraise of, uh, of well, first of all, why the Law Commission, you know, what how what who are they and why do they you know, why do they get involved to make such verdicts? And then if perhaps you can just give us your views on what is this third category of assets and and why I, I love you. I welcome it's welcomed and it's a look to the future. Perhaps if you can enlarge on that. That'd be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um the Law Commission um, is, is a pretty um, august and, and, in my view, actually incredibly um, worthwhile um, institution. And it is staffed by academic lawyers, government lawyers, judges and practitioners who come and go according to what it is they're looking at. And their job is to reflect on how the English statute law should develop alongside the common law. And of course, the common law is the great jewel in our legal system. It's, it's this incredible um, mechanism of evolving our laws to suit new challenges and new circumstances. And the Law Commission's job is to make sure that statute does the same thing. And it operates by producing, um, through a consultation process, proposals 
which Parliament can then either adopt in the form they're proposed or or vary them. And that's what they've done with digital assets. And because this is such a, a new, interesting, but at the same time challenging area of the law, this has been a very long-awaited uh, paper from the Law Commission. So that's essentially what they what they do and, and what they have done in this case. Okay. Um, is, there, is there any equivalent um, in other jurisdictions? There is an equivalent in um, the United States, which is, of course, contrary to a lot of people's uh, apprehension, also a common law jurisdiction. Um, but uh, it's not just because I'm a proud English lawyer. Um, I don't think anybody, including the United States, has something as good as or as well informed as our law commission. Right. So, so these, this is a group of independent experts who um, will be selected based on their own particular expertise to, to come and advise and effectively give, give some guidance to um, judges because they can actually, you know, make a decision. Then we have case law um, or, or it's actually for um, governments then pass statutes to say, OK, well, this is this is we're going to pass um, laws and regulations or certainly laws as to um, what should be. And then from that, regulators step in and say, OK, we've now got the law, got some definitions. We may put some regulations around this. Yeah, it's not so much um, guidance to judges, although I have to say, just as we're discussing it now, judges will, of course, be aware of what the Law Commission is saying. It is normally intended to directly inform the legislature Parliament, lawmakers, uh, parliamentary draftsmen, the people who put put laws together. And that's that's its principal function. But I have to say, judges will anticipate where they think the law is going by looking at the Law Commission. Although, of course, they've got to be very careful to apply the law as it stands, not as it might be in two, three years time. But for we uh, lawyers, not constrained as judges are, um, absolutely, um, it will affect our advice because in most cases, not all, but in most cases, the proposals the Law Commission make will become the law of two years' time. Got it. Got it. And, and is, is it that sort of time frame you're looking at? Is it a couple of years typically? Ordinarily, um, in the present case, with the present political uncertainty, a general election looming in 18 months' time, I think that two years might get extended. Um, but if there is a change of government, if, for example, there is a majority Labour government, all indications are that they would accept the Law Commission's proposal and they are as enthusiastic as parts of the present government are to legislate, to make digital assets part of our statute law, not just our common law. And in contrast to the House of Commons, there is, and I, I think you and I both know, Lord Chris Holmes in yeah. the House of Lords, who has been um, a real campaigner for legislation to cover digital assets. And so I think there'll there'll always be support and impetus from the House of Lords, whoever is in power. So, yeah, two years, roughly, I suspect in this case, slightly longer. OK, uh, unless we get uh, case law, unless, unless the case is brought and then we get case law. Is, is that a fair comment? Yes. I mean, we have some case law at the moment. I mean, at the moment, the, the, the common law says that digital assets are property, mm. um, yeah, like, like the pen in my hand um, or the earphones that I've got on. Um, the Law Commission have taken a different approach. They said, no, no, um, we're going to create a third and new category of of asset specifically intended to cover digital assets. OK, so, so before we get into that, I must congratulate you. Yeah. You've, um, you. you've got a pen. I thought you'd have a, 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 a quill, a feathered quill. Do you know what? 
<laughs> it's my little comfort blanket, actually, and it's it's pro- it's a bad habit or a good habit. It's probably very irritating to judges, but I always like to have a pen in my hand, even if I'm not writing anything. Particularly when I'm on my feet uh, advocating, and you know, I've got all sorts of little tricks where I can spin it around and you know <laughs> juggle it, which probably is probably very irritating to someone uh, listening listening to and looking at me. But um, anyhow, at least oh, you're not looking at me. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so sorry, I interrupted. So, can you just explain what it, what do you mean by the third category, and, and why why is it welcomed? Okay. So, at the moment, English law only really recognises two types of asset. Um, what most people would understand to be tangible assets: yeah, the pen, the headphones, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second category is what what is in slightly old-fashioned language. Uh, chose as an action so that that's a right so my right to sue my bank for example to recover the balance on my current account if i'm <clears throat> lucky to have a balance in my favor as opposed to an overdraft um so it, it's so property is either tangible physical or it's a, a right that you can exercise over something or somebody else which is which which, which would give you a benefit that's what's called a chosen action the law commission are proposing because they, having wrestled with this, don't think digital assets fall into either of those two categories with sufficient clarity, that a whole new uh, asset class is introduced by statute, and that would be the digital asset asset class. And this is a digital asset um, where we're talking about um, dots and dashes, ones and zeros. This isn't a dig- This isn't when we digitise um pounds or 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 any other fiat currency and it's not digitizing funds or equities or bonds or co- commodities anything like that the, 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 this is this is um this is crypto assets these are zero these are computer generated assets is that just just for clarity's sake exactly so so yeah, there has been some controversy in relation to the proposal because um this asset class could be represented for example by an algorithmic code and the point has been made that uh, why is that distinguishable from any algorithmic code on a computer? Why is it suddenly um, an asset in English law? Well, the answer is it's it's an asset which is connected to some measure of value, which is the original definition of a of, of a, a a crypto asset, something that either measures or stores value. So as long as your algorithmic code is connected to or represents that thing, if I use that very general term, that measure or store of value, then it's yep. likely to be a, a, a digital asset. So Sorry. it's one of the reasons why you can understand the Law Commission, um, who are august, bright, well-informed people, really found it difficult to shoehorn digital assets into either the asset that you can possess, something normally physical, or a, a chosen action, a, a right a wider right. It doesn't really fit either of those two categories, and I happen to agree with that. Okay, brilliant. And 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 it's welcome, if I can paraphrase it, because essentially the, the Law Commission is suggesting that it's open then to um, English law and, and to then interpret different types of scenarios, because undoubtedly we're going to see digital assets be evolving and, and creating different rights and obligations for people. Exactly. It's not trying to be and, too specific, uh, I suppose. That's what I'm trying to say. 
Exactly. It's neither too specific nor too prescriptive. And I think this has been slightly misunderstood by some commentators. But I think what is good about the Law Commission's proposal is that it has set a very um, slim framework under which the common law can then take up the baton and build build on that framework, you know, put 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 flesh on the skeleton. Um, so the intention is that Parliament will produce, as I understand it, a pretty light touch and high level definition of what this third category of property is, of, of, of rights rather, and the rest will be left up to judges to interpret that statute and apply it in individual cases as this technology evolves and that it will be the common law that will really define the ambit of these digital assets, what is or is not a digital asset, and indeed what different classes of digital asset might be. So for those who are waiting for the Law Commission to produce a a very comprehensive and all-encompassing proposal, um, they'll be disappointed. And and I, I, I think... Uh, rightly, rightly so. Well, I say rightly so. I think it's it is right that they should be disappointed because it would have been wrong of the law commission to do that. So the role of the courts and judges and litigants, because after all, judges can't make decisions without parties turning up before them with a dispute. They are going to play a really important role in developing this area of the law over the next five, ten years. Right, right. So, so what we what we're saying is that rather than being very prescriptive and basing the law on what we know now. They're trying to build in a degree of flexibility um, that the, the courts can then use and, and possibly legislative can, can have that flexibility um, so that it's relevant going forward. Yes. So yeah, it, it, in the commission's own words, this is simply a clear and consistent framework with the, evid- with the emphasis on framework um, to develop the law of digital assets. And you, so you're absolutely right. And the reason they've done that is that, as we all know, if they had gone the other way and tried to produce a very complicated, all-encompassing piece of legislation, it would almost certainly have been out of date by the time it had made its passage through both Houses of Parliament. Yeah. So very sensibly, they've left the uh, relatively fleet of foot common law to keep developing this area case by case day by day, month by month, as the technology changes, as they recognise it will. You know, as you and I know, we're going to be in a very different place in 18 months, two years' time, certainly in five years' time from where we are now in terms of how this technology works. And there are going to be new players coming into the market, both private and nation-state, who are going to have a huge effect. All of that's got to be reflected in the law of England and Wales. And really, what's at the heart of this and it's it's a rare flash of optimism for both the UK Parliament and its economy. Is at the heart of this is the intention of to make the UK or at least English law the best law and England and Wales the best jurisdiction to regulate digital assets. So that you know when a Hong Kong company or a South Korean company or a French company decide to contract in relation to these assets, they'll choose English law as right. the governing law of that contract. Because they will look at it and think, we've got certainty, we've got reliability, we've got clarity. That's the key. Yeah. And, and to be fair, you've also got the track record of English law is already used in, in what, over, over 80 jurisdictions already. 
So it's it's not as if this is something new. A lot a lot of these overseas jurisdictions often write um, law in um, their own laws in, in in English law. In any case, they do. And I mean, there are some remarkable figures actually as to the percentage of international trade that is carried out under English law contracts. It's a it's a huge proportion. Yeah. So don't underestimate the the, the significance of that. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I, I'm dealing with a number of cases at the moment which would have no connection with this jurisdiction whatsoever. The contracting parties are on the other side of the world. Um, the digital assets they're dealing with have no connection with this jurisdiction. But they just happen to have agreed that their contractual relations are going to be governed by the law of England and Wales. And it's, you know, it sucks in all of that work to this jurisdiction. And the importance of that cannot be underestimated going forward. Yeah, no, no. Very, yeah. And and. You know, at the end of the day, we're talking about very often a a transfer of value, a payment. In, therefore, if I can loosely use the word currency, and if you look at the foreign exchange market, you know it's roughly uh, it's just over five trillion dollars a day, and the UK accounts for between fifty five and sixty percent of that volume. You know, I think it's about two point eight, two point nine trillion dollars a day is being transacted through London, and. Um, the next nearest market is New York, and it's you know we're fifty percent bigger than New York. So, it, it, I think it's really important longer term that the UK can be seen as a trusted, reliable source um, to enforce you know contracts and, and the like. So, um, yeah, re- really good. Yeah, I, I, FX is a very very important case in point because a couple of investment banks have tried to set up essentially blockchain platforms to transact um, FX because it would be so much faster than the present systems. And, and obviously, the banks have a slight conflict in that respect, because that, that delay makes their money at the moment. Um, but a lot of clients are getting very wise to that and much more complaining about it. And the first bank to offer something which is far quicker and therefore far cheaper is going to make even more money. So absolutely. And I, I think FX is a very good example of where um, tokenization or di- you know, digital transactions and certainly the use of stripping back to basics the block blockchain technology yeah. um is going to be very significant well one, one to keep an eye on then uh james is fx everywhere from hsbc um it's now being used by um wells fargo as well um, and they they claim it is substantially cheaper and faster than cls which is the main um, system used um, CLS. It's a bank um, with a, it's a subsidiary here in, in London, but also ma- main places in New York. And HSBC claim that um, their their blockchain platform is indeed faster and cheaper. So it'll be interesting to see how how that evolves. But uh, it Jake, will be, and yeah, re- really, really, really good to have you back. And um, I know last time we were talking about a court case that you were working on. Um, any any update on tulip trading? Yeah, um, two, two updates, actually. Um, wider than the Tulip case, there is now a trial in January of 2024, which will uh, determine the question of whether um, Dr. Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin. That has quite significant implications for a lot of litigation, which has spawned in the last um, three to four years concerning the role of developers in uh, the maintenance of um, the Bitcoin and, and wider cryptocurrency networks. So I suspect by May, June of next year, that we'll have judgment in that case. And that will be very, very significant. As for Tulip specifically, 
which is itself impacted by that trial. Uh, Valley is likely to go to a hearing uh, towards the end of next year. Um, battle lines are drawn. Uh, the case is now before the English courts, having been to the Court of Appeal last year, and as was recognised by the Court of Appeal, that will have, a, in my view, an existential uh, effect, one way or the other, for good or evil, yeah. um, on the role of developers. So, yeah, I mean, I, we go back to common law. This is the common law in action. And by the end of 2024, the English courts will have delivered at least two hugely significant decisions, which will impact on the way that digital currency networks operate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and as you say, developers and potentially their liability or not, um, you know, in, in, in relation to this. Yes, a- yeah. absolutely. And, and as I said, the consequences of that are going to be very significant. Whatever Parliament decides to do with the Law Commission's proposals, this is the common law in action. And yeah, uh, we, we will wait and see. It's going to be a very, very interesting and in many ways, exciting 2024 for that reason. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, James, thank you very much. Great talking to you. And um, I'm, I'm not going to let you get away till the end of next year. I'll be definitely um, be bending your own, asking you to come um, write another article, Digital Bytes, and get you back on the airways because it, it's, um, it, I, I love the way you explain it and the way you talk because I think so many times, and, you know, we often have lawyers um, that, that come on the show, but it's it, the erudite way you explain what's actually happening now, I think is really helpful. And we, we've had some great feedback. So that's, thank you very much for taking the time, writing the article and coming back. And we will speak to you soon. Well, John, it's my pleasure. And it, it, it's always great fun to come and, come and talk to you. Super. All right. Thank you, James.